This episode of Astonishing Legends is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus, ZipRecruiter, Casper, Squarespace, and our contributors at Patreon.com. 1939 was a year of unrest and change around the world. Hitler announced a five-year naval expansion known as Plan Z, designed to best the Royal Navy by 1944. An earthquake in Chile killed 30,000 civilians, and Amelia Earhart, missing two years, was officially declared dead. The U.S. city of Chicago was dealing with organized crime, and the union workers' organization that later became the AFL-CIO was taking shape. The Great Depression was thankfully drawing to a close, and big band music was taking off as ballrooms sprang up across the country to host them, and the tens of thousands of kids and young adults who readily paid to listen and dance to their music. Chicago had no shortage of these ballrooms in 1939, including the Liberty Grove and Hall at 47th and Mozart. And that was the one that a young 25-year-old man named Jerry Palis went to one night that year, as he had so many times before. By his own declaration, he was not a man who lacked self-confidence. And upon seeing a tall, beautiful young blonde woman standing alone in a stunning white party dress, he made his way over to her, and asked for a dance. They wound up dancing together all night. But as much as Jerry tried to get to know her, she offered very little conversation in return, other than to say her name was Mary and that she lived on the south side of town, South Damon Avenue. While they danced, Jerry noticed something odd about her. Her hands were ice cold. As the night drew to a close, he offered her a ride home. They left Liberty Grove and walked out to Jerry's car. Along the way, Mary told him that she'd like to go out to Archer Road. Getting to it wasn't too far away, but it was in the exact opposite direction of South Damon Avenue, where she claimed to live. Jerry asked her why, and she insisted she just wanted to go for a drive out Archer. At the time, it was not nearly as developed as it is today, and the drive was a quiet one towards an increasingly rural area. As they drove along, with Jerry trying to make conversation, his unusual passenger suddenly forcefully said, Stop! Stop the car! Pull over here! Stop the car! He was perplexed, but he pulled to the side of the road. There were almost no houses anywhere nearby. They were at 71st and Archer, and there was only one thing here. Resurrection Cemetery. She got out of the car, stating, I must leave, and you cannot follow. She then darted across the street to the closed and locked gates of the cemetery and quietly vanished into thin air. Jerry Palis had just spent his entire evening dancing with one of Chicago's most famous residents, Resurrection Mary. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. Just take me up, Archer. A ghostly passenger who had been offered a ride by a man known only as Tony on September 5th, 1980. She soon vanished from his car. They say you should never pick up a hitchhiker, but join us tonight as we stop to pick up Resurrection Mary. Resurrection Mary. 
And we're back, both of us. Uh, yeah, that last couple of weeks have not been fun. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, well, why don't you tell us what happened there, Chuck Norris? Yeah, well, yeah, it's a little embarrassing. I don't want to get into the details. Oh, please, I, come on. Uh, well, one of my senseis at Kempo, who's yeah. a brown belt, asked me to pin him to the wall so he could demonstrate <laughs> something, which I did, and he demonstrated it. Yeah. And my body said, no. Uh, <laughs> well, your, your arms were flung afar. They, right? were, they were pretty yeah. radically. The thing is, it actually didn't feel, I felt a little something. It didn't feel that yeah. bad. I, then I did like a 30-minute lesson after that, and uh, I came home. And then over the next 36 hours, I descended into the seventh circle of hell. Yeah, well, that's, <laughs> that's also called middle-aged man syndrome. Oh, my where, God. Yeah. I just want to say thank you to all the well-wishers. Got so many nice messages on Twitter, mm-hmm. Facebook, Instagram, everywhere. Everybody just said the nicest stuff. So I uh, really appreciate it. Um, it's why we had to cancel the show for the first time, really, since we started, I believe. I don't recall canceling it. We canceled uh, one that was on the calendar, but no one ever knew about that. This one we canceled right in the slot it was supposed to come out in. So apologies about that. It's going to be a long time before my arm's right, but the excruciating constant pain has passed, thank God. We'd like to remind everyone to please remember to support our sponsors along with our amazing patrons. They are the ones paying the bills around here and keeping the show free to listen to. And they only come back if you guys support them from time to time. So thank you for doing that. We also have some brand new maroon hats in our store, which is my favorite hat of ours now. And in the very near future, we're going to have a few new fan art t-shirts from our Arcapalooza series, as well as some other exciting stuff. So head over to astonishinglegends.com to get those or any one of our various t-shirts, stickers, or coffee slash whiskey mugs. (laughs) And we just did a guest appearance on Chasing Earhart as well, where we had a very long discussion, as we're wont to do, with Chris Williamson about our updated points of view on the mystery of her disappearance in light of new information. And we went on to discuss some of the most recent declarations that her bones were found in Nicomaroro, which, as you might imagine, we have some questions and opinions on. To say the least, that episode of Chasing Earhart with us as their guest drops April 7th, followed the very next week by Chris's interview with Dr. Jantz, who actually wrote that paper that asserts that the bones found on Niku decades ago had a 99% chance of being hers. We cannot wait to hear that show. <laughs> I can't wait for Dr. Jans to tear us apart and tell us how wrong we were about his entire paper and, and his theories. Yeah, so. it's probably not great that our show's right before his, but it's better than after, which would have probably made him angrier. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> well, at least we probably would have been right about it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, well, we also want to mention that author and researcher Brad Lockwood, who wrote the book On Giants, Mounds, Monsters, Myth and Man, or Why We Want to Be Small, recently wrote to us. Now, that was a book we referenced pretty heavily, and we thought it was a, he did a really great job. So it was very exciting for us, and we were quite thrilled that he sent an email to us uh, saying that somebody had alerted him that we cited his book pretty heavily. Yeah. Well, we cited it for a reason, because we thought it was a very serious attempt at great research and a fun read, and that was all found in our series on giants called The Tall Ones. So that was a great little exchange, but Mr. Lockwood had a very important message he wanted to relay to our listening audience here, and that is, do not go trespassing on Spanish Hill. It's posted private land, and the owner does not take kindly to visitors, if you know what I'm saying, and he will respond aggressively. So no legend tripping there at Spanish Hill, kids. Instead, if you're curious about the subject of curiously tall regional Native Americans and lore, go visit the Susquehanna River Archaeological Center at 345 Broad Street in Waverly, New York. Yeah, and researcher and lecturer Deb Twig, who we also mentioned quite a bit in that series, and who also manages the terrific website SpanishHill.com, 
She has a lot of involvement with the center, and the museum itself has a ton of fascinating artifacts, so if you're in that area, definitely go check them out. And a quick reminder for those of you in the Ohio area, we're thrilled to say that we are attending the Kent Paranormal Weekend for our first time on April 28th and 29th. Visit tinyurl.com slash astonishingkent for more information. And tickets are just $25. That's T-I-N-Y-U-R-L dot com slash astonishingkent. Okay, now getting down to the matter at hand, in our small club of strange and unusual podcasts, like so many of the ones that Scott had mentioned during his broken arm announcement. I did not say it was broken. <laughs> Whatever you big cry, baby. <laughs> anyway, uh, what happens from time to time is that we sometimes cover similar topics to our friends and vice versa. Well, tonight's episode is one of those times. Uh, yeah, when we put this one in the hopper, we hadn't realized that our buddy Mike Brown over at Pleasing Terrors had just done his own show on Resurrection Mary. Well, that's all fine because neither of us have any issues with any of that because while Astonishing Legends and Pleasing Terrors as well as other shows, may cover similar topics, the reality is we all do our own shows in different ways. So it's all good, especially if you're a junkie for the strange and unusual like we all are. Point is, if you want to learn even more about Resurrection Mary, absolutely check out episode 30 of Pleasing Terrors, entitled Resurrection. And don't worry, it's it's not as long as our shows are. <laughs> I don't think anybody is, except for Dan Carlin's shows. But no, it's a great way to get uh, an encapsulated story with great narration. He does a great job. His research is solid. So if you want it summed up and don't want any of our regular baloney, go check it out. And last order of business is that we're thrilled to announce that author Adam Selzer is going to be featured later in this series, which will be out in a few weeks. We're dark next week due to my son's spring break, but part two will be out the week after that. Adam wrote a well-researched and informative book on Resurrection Mary entitled The Resurrection Mary Files, and he has some great insight into his investigation on her. Yeah, that's going to be a blast. I honestly cannot wait to talk to him. All right, now, let's get this thing going. So, Scott, where do we start? All right, well, here's where I'd like to start. It's an audio clip from an old radio show from WGN Chicago called Supernatural Chicago with Eddie Schwartz, he was the host, and his guest for this particular episode, the late ghost hunter Richard Crow, who we're going to be talking about a lot during this series. Now, this is something that Katie Cohen dug up for us in the Astonishing Research course. She's our resident anthropologist. She's been very busy lately because we, mm. we kept her busy on the Giants thing. She's uh, now been working with Chasing Earhart, and then she had to bounce back over on this. <laughs> so yeah. thank you, Katie. But this clip is really great. This reminds me of uh, when I was in college studying communications. I used to love to go to the library where they had old recordings on records. And even if you weren't there, it evokes this memory. And I think for a lot of people in Chicago, this is probably a pretty prominent memory. This show's from uh, 1982. He's a local legend, yes. uh, Eddie Schwartz, the radio host. He might even be a little bit like Art Bell, but covering a wide range of subjects for the late night Chicago radio audience. And one of his most requested guests on there was folklorist and self-described ghost hunter Richard T. Crow. He was often requested to come back on and talk about all the strange things he was uh, keeping track of. Yeah. So this is a great clip. It's from their archives. So you get a good sense of one of the major players here on the folklore side, the people trying to track this story, and really one of the people who has kept her memory alive, her legend going. Yeah, and we're going to be talking about Crow a little bit later in this episode, but right now, take a listen to this clip. <laughs> Thank you. 
think the first time that we ever got together on the radio, this is one of the things we talked about. We've talked about it every time since. I doubt there's a person you ever run into who knows what you do who doesn't want to hear this famous story. This one has put Chicago on the ghostly map, hasn't it? It certainly has. And of all the stories told about Chicago, the one that instantly grabs the attention of people, no matter where they're from in the United States, no matter where they're from in the world, they all want to hear about Resurrection Mary. Of course, hitchhiking ghosts as a, uh, a genre, if you will, are well known around the world. There are hitchhiking ghosts in just about every uh, every country in the, on the face of the globe. Uh, but when it comes to the Chicago area, the most famous hitchhiking ghost, and one that is so often encountered, is that of Resurrection Mary. Well, there you have it. Special thanks to WGN Radio for giving us permission to use that clip. Yeah, I just love the timbre of both their voices. It's like, yes, it's, it's well, Richard, midnight. I'm laying in bed and listening yeah. to, you know, AM radio or whatever. So it's exactly. just... Exactly. That's why, you know, again, you like George Norrie and, and Art Bell for that kind of timbre. And then Richard has a great radio voice. Yeah. You don't know who the host is. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. But it's just fun hearing uh, people talk about spooky stuff late at night on the radio. Yeah. There's just something about that. You know, it's, we've never really talked about it, but we always say, tonight on the show or listen because <laughs> we always right. want you to listen at night that's even though right. we're not necessarily recording at night uh, usually we, yeah. we, we started out the first year we were recording right. at night and then we realized that was making us crazy <laughs> <laughs> well hopefully this doesn't make our listeners crazy but let's discuss what we've already heard because yeah. what you heard in the cold open that nice little story there is probably the most famous encounter story with a spirit called Resurrection Mary. Yeah. It's one of the few that actually has a clear name ascribed to the being it, that was well, encountered yeah. by the living human. That is true, right. Yeah. She named herself, or she told her name to Jerry Palis, and that's another aspect of that, is that we have a witness who's willing to come on various media, Unsolved Mysteries, he was interviewed, yep. and, you know, brave all the criticism he knows he's going to get and say, you know what, I danced with a ghost. And, and that is an important aspect, because what we heard in the beginning is not the origin story of Resurrection Mary. Think about this. When Jerry had encountered Mary, she was already dead. Yeah. So... How did she die? And there's actually a few more details to that story right. that, that weren't in a cold open. I want to go ahead and share those with our listeners. And those details are important because what Jerry has reported fit very key aspects of not only this ghost story in particular, but a lot of them, and also ones that are considered urban legend. It's classic. So we have to know, one, how did she become a ghost? And two, we're going to talk about some of the elements of Jerry's story. So some, what are some of the things that we didn't mention up top? Well, one of them that's the most fascinating is that you might remember in the story that he was given her address. He was told that she lived on South Damon Avenue. That's right. And that's how he knew that taking her out to Archer was going to be the wrong direction. So he went to the home, according to his report, which he gave an interview to Richard Crow, who we played the audio clip from. And also, they played some of that, some video footage from that in the Unsolved Mysteries. That was episode 97 of Unsolved Mysteries yeah. uh, that he appeared in. But it was only a very small clip. And some of the subsequent research we found has suggested that people aren't really sure where that material is. It might have been Mr. Crow's material. Mm -hmm. And um, mm -hmm. I think no one knows where those interviews are, really, right, which right. is interesting. But Unsolved Mysteries very quickly cut away from him to their reenactment and narration. Yeah. But one of the things that they said was, well, yeah, he'd got this address. It was... South 
Damon Avenue, and he went to that address the day after she disappeared at the cemetery. Right, because think about it this way. If you hear a story, and we brought this up before, and I think also in interviews when people ask us about how we look at stories and which ones to cover, we always try and find one that has a payoff. We'll call it the hook on yeah. the story you know, in, the, in the campfire urban legend. It's, it's literally, literally a hook. <laughs> so it's, it's dangling. But again, I, I said this in an interview. It's like, well, what's he using for a hand now? Yeah, also, a bag of hands? That's one of, my, of hooks? one of my favorite scenes in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? It's yeah. just a montage scene of George Clooney like in his prison getup telling stories around the campfire and he's making a hook motion with his hand <laughs> and right. you know, talking, but you don't hear it. It's yeah. so, yeah. You know what he's saying because these are so prevalent. But the point about this story is... There is a button. There's a payoff. Because as I was starting to mention, if somebody said, like, I danced with this girl. She seemed ghostly white and pale and cold and clammy to the touch. It's like, all right. So you you met somebody who had a fever. So she she had the flu. (laughs) Take some vitamin C. There's nothing more to that other than he had a weird experience and maybe he felt weird. But this story has a payoff. And this is a classic payoff with these types of stories. And what is this one? Well, when he gets to her house and he knocks on the door, a woman comes to the door and he explains, look, I offered this girl a ride home last night that I met at the Liberty Grove and Hall. And I was bringing her home. But first she asked me to take her for a ride out Archer Road. And I did. And I let her out of the car and she disappeared. But this is the address she gave me. And the woman looks at him and says, sorry, nobody here by that name. And then he looks just past her and on a table behind her in the foyer of the house is a photograph. And in that picture is Mary that he danced with. And he goes, that's her. And the woman then sort of reluctantly admits, well, that's my daughter. She's been dead for years. Right. And so at that point, he's like, what? You know? (laughs) So, (laughs) I mean, did he really dance with her that night? We don't know. But he might be dancing with her now because Jerry Palis is now himself buried at Resurrection Cemetery. For that one last dance. Yeah. So those were the final details there. But this story, there's a story like this that I know from North Carolina, which I'm going to be talking about a little more in part two of this series. But the details are eerily similar, really similar. No, that's going to be one of the analytical through points for our discussion here is that how many of these things are kind of globally lined up. And it's not just the United States. It's not just regional here. It's all over the world. And And it's not just recent. No, exactly. These things have been going on for a long time. So yeah, you you have an address. And part of the story here is it's always best if it's the anniversary of the day. Now, as we heard in Archipelousa, Marie, one of her relative's stories of Paul's grandmother. That's uh, Marie's husband. Marie's husband. That diary thing happens. Happens to the day, the 10th anniversary, I believe, of the day she made the entry in the diary, but only a few weeks after she had passed away. Exactly. And if you haven't heard that, the lights flicker when they read the last passage in her diary. Yeah. On the same day it was written 10 years later. On the, exactly. So that gives, time. Yeah. The time apparently was in right, there. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. To the time. So that gives you a chill that adds significance. And with this story here. And by the way, that's a firsthand story. Yes, exactly. Which we love to share because those are different. But that's the interesting thing about Jerry Palis. He was there. Now, could he be making something up? We'll talk about all those angles. But this is a story he told for years and years and years to a variety of outlets. That has made it the probably the most popular and enduring encounter story. But there could be hundreds. Yeah. And, and yeah, a lot of them are going to be people who were mistaken or it was just it really was a weird girl walking by the side of the road or they saw uh, somewhere in the area and they're going to jump to that conclusion or they're just having a laugh. 
or they really did see something. And so these are so prevalent in this area. And there are factors for this that make it one of Chicago's most enduring, probably their most popular ghost story. But it's not the origin story, because when Jerry met her, she was already a ghost. So how did she become a ghost? And things get added to it and things get taken away. It's a little bit like Chinese whispers or the telephone game. People make it their own. They add their own little bits to it. But what's interesting is that over the course of uh, over a half a century now, maybe 80 years, is that what gets distilled in the crucible of this story are some very basic elements. And so the story goes a little like this. Sometime, either in the late 1920s or early 1930s, a young couple was dancing at the O. Henry Ballroom, later to become the Willowbrook Ballroom. Yeah, and that O. Henry is O-O-H, like O. Henry, not O. <laughs> Henry, O, you know, the, the writer, Henry yes. the writer, which was a nom de plume. Exactly. And we'll talk more about that later. So they're both dancing the night away to big band ballroom music. But at some point during the evening, they have a really bad argument, and she leaves the ballroom. Storms out. Storms out. Would rather not spend one more minute with this guy and he's going after her he's pleading like let me drive you home no as you do yeah, <laughs> yeah. not that i've ever been in this situation <laughs> yeah i'm sure <laughs> but she says no thanks. Yeah, no thanks and she leaves the building heading out into the cold wintry snowy chicago night on her own to walk home in the darkness as she makes her way up archer avenue She's struck by an automobile and thrown into the ditch, and the hit-and-run driver leaves her there to die. She's later found, and her parents are so bereaved that they bury her in her white ball gown and dancing shoes. And from then on, people have claimed to see her walking by the side of the road, or in the ballroom itself, or dancing at the gates of Resurrection Cemetery. I'm Sprinkleface, and when I'm not researching for the Mad Scientist podcast, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. There is one other version of this story, <laughs> That's actually, right. which yeah. is pretty interesting, where instead of that happening that you were talking about where mm -hmm. she tries to walk home and gets the hit and run, uh, there's another version where her father comes to pick her up. Right. And they get in a car accident yeah. on the way home, right. and she gets killed in that accident, right? Right. However, I think with that version, you'd think there'd be some documentation or a little bit more. Well, you'd think there would be with a hit and run. That yeah. was often reported in the paper. But I can see that kind of getting overlooked maybe. But these are the wispy vagaries of this origin tale. That's what endures. As we are so many times. Exactly. <laughs> so what kind of story is this? Well, the tale of Resurrection Mary fits a particular type of ghost story or urban legend called a vanishing hitchhiker story. And the term urban legend was made popular by folklorist Jan Harald Brunvand, author of, yes, the book called The Vanishing Hitchhiker, American Urban Legends and Their Meanings. And that was published in 1981. Yeah. Also, the Encyclopedia of Urban Legends, I think published in 2001. Yeah, I've and got that one. <laughs> you do. And I think one of our listeners on Twitter showed us a picture of that. I can't remember. Yeah, the time somebody I had tweeted that, and yeah. I saw that picture, and I was like, must have. And I immediately went and found it at one of my used book places, which I've been <laughs> managing to collect a lot of those links that help you find old books now. In fact, yeah. Yeah. after a two-year search and an alert we had, 
Sorry, folks. It is a late Friday in Los Angeles, <laughs> and 10 billion planes are flying, as you might have heard me talk about in our special announcement last week. We're just going to keep right. rolling, or we're never going to get done. Yeah. But anyway, I did want to add that after like a two-year alert, we found another matching copy of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, That's which right. we recently sent to uh, Professor Abbott in Adelaide, and we'll have updates on that later this year. Exactly. But that cover for the Encyclopedia of Urban Legends, which, yeah. you know, I bought it myself a few months ago, and I have looked through it, but I didn't even realize that it was Brunvond. Yeah. Uh, until we started talking about this tonight, and you were like, don't you have that book? And I was like, I, I don't know, do I? And yeah, sure I yeah. do. It's, well, it's great. Yeah. And it's got a little chapter on uh, Vanishing Hitchhikers in it as well. Exactly. I remember poking around his book, The Vanishing Hitchhiker, way back when. Yeah, when, 81. When, that was 20 years prior to the encyclopedia. Yeah. After yeah. that, it was probably in college that uh, somebody introduced it to me. And, you know, it's utterly fascinating. And so is the encyclopedia of urban legends, because it's all these fun little stories. And where do they start? How are they tracked? What's at the bottom of them? And so Brunvand, at least with The Vanishing Hitchhiker, claims that he could find stories going back to at least the 1870s. Yeah. Because, well, hitchhiking, it, it involves transportation. So even back to the horse and buggy days, stories could be tracked. And that's kind of what a folklorist does. They collect these stories. They try and interview as many people about these as, as they can and really try to track down the origins of these and figure out a, a path. Where are they going? What are they like? How are they developing over the years? But you can find stories that go back even further. And the Astonishing Research Corps did find a few examples, which we'll get to later, that are even earlier than that. We're talking the Middle Ages, really. But Resurrection Mary also falls under the category of ghosts or spirits or specters collectively known as a lady in white. And we'll talk about the more famous ladies in white, like La Llorona, the White Witch, in part two of the series, which kind of analyzes that aspect of her appearance. As well as some of these uh, older stories of hitchhikers. Oh, yeah. Which yeah. go all the way back to the Bible in yeah, some cases. Yeah. So let's go back and start finding what are these earliest accounts of a Mary-like figure popping up in southwest of Chicago and, and some of the suburbs there. Well, I call this the Bonnie and Clyde appearances, <laughs> That's where right, yeah. people were driving down Archer Road, and at the time, cars had the long noses and the flat windshields and running boards right, on the side. Right. For those of you that don't know what running boards are, well, you might if you've got a Lincoln Navigator or something, but yeah. those footboards on the side of the car that in the old days, when they first came out, you could stand on. And uh, yes. gangsters used them a lot to hang on the side when they originated the idea of the drive-by shooting. Apparently, people would be going down Archer Avenue, and there were stories of this ghostly apparition jumping onto the running boards of these cars. Yeah, exactly. Now, one of the authors we're going to be taking a look at is named Troy Taylor, and he's author of the book, The Girl by the Side of the Road, The True Story of Resurrection Mary. He's also a primary contributor for the Weird franchise series, I think for Illinois, Weird That's Illinois right. maybe, right? That's right. Yeah. And so these are a series of books, I think subtitled Hell Hath No Fury, series book number eight. And he's also got a great website. You'll see him on that uh, website. We'll have links to it. But he's really summed up well the aspects of the Resurrection Mary story. So we're going to be pulling some information from his website and some of his writings. But he was saying that stories of the vanishing hitchhikers in the Chicago area really date back to, as we said, horseless carriage days horse and buggy. But stories of this particular hitchhiker, Mary, started sometime around the mid-1930s when motorists started reporting that a young woman wearing a white dress 
would run up or just appear on somebody's running board by the side of their car. Our family is a 1946 Ford. Oh, yeah. And so when you open the door, it's basically like the step. It's like, you know, you see on pickups now or your, your Lincoln Navigator where it kind of comes out yeah. as you open the door. Well, there was a fixture basically. So that was part of the side of the car near the bottom skirt where you could always stand there. So basically now she's either running and jumping up on this thing and trying to hop a ride, or she just appears there and she's freaking people out. Yeah. As it would, because you might expect a Southside Bowery boy to kind of like be goofing around and hop a ride on there. But it's a woman in a white ball gown, generally described, very beautiful, long blonde hair, blue eyes, very pale skin. So that's kind of the first stories that start popping up. And again, if that's the mid 30s, that's prior to uh, Palis's encounter in the Liberty Grove. 39, I believe. Yeah, he was 39. And so this is predating that. These are really, as far as anybody can tell, again, these aren't documented because no one's really recording this. No, it's a lot of oral history and and there's folklore involved. And Brunvon makes the valid point that there's a difference between an urban legend and a paranormal story. And there, there should be a boundary there. And I would make that too. I mean, plenty of urban legends have a paranormal bent to them. But when you label a paranormal event an urban legend, you're dismissing it as having any sort of factuality to it right out of the gate, which isn't necessarily fair. Right. So. And, and there's different types of urban legends as well. One of my favorites, I think that was in that book, is the Mexican Chihuahua story where, you know, the family, they take a trip to Mexico, they pick up a cute little Chihuahua dog. Oh, yeah. He's got some manger or something, <laughs> they bring it home. It's like, no, no, that's a rat. So that's not exactly paranormal. That's just weird and you got rooked yeah. you know, in the market. <laughs> People have heard that too. And some of the other ones are like, you wake up in a bathtub and your kidney's gone. Yeah. And you've been in a bathtub of ice the whole night. That's an urban legend. To, yeah, you didn't get hypothermia. Yeah. You were attacked by precision surgeons somehow <laughs> for your black market kidney. So those are the types of non-paranormal urban legends that are pretty common, and and they're hard to pin down to any one original teller of the tale. It's but they're I, always removed. This may be not the time in our discussion for this, but I do believe that a story can start out as a paranormal story yeah. and then branch off into urban legend territory where the story is mutating and being shared, and a lot of the information that's being added to it is following that urban legend path, which yes. is unrelated to an eyewitness account. They are kind of married to each other, for lack of a better term, is that one completes the other and vice versa, then it's a circular kind of thing. Yeah. Now, as the Mary story goes... It's starting to progress and morph and mature. So now she's starting to appear closer to the old O. Henry ballroom after these initial reports of seeing her on the road. So the pattern of appearances is getting closer to the dance hall, which would later become known as the Willowbrook Ballroom. And this lovely young blonde woman was being seen inside the ballroom now, showing up unnoticed and alone and either leaving unnoticed or leaving with a young man, even after a night of dancing, they would take off together or leave together, and then we'd have that story repeat. What's interesting is that there are accounts where a guy was working there, and he noticed this woman show up, and he's like, I worked the door. I didn't see her show up. I see everybody that comes in. I have to card them. And we never saw her leave. She was just there. Yeah. And always with the same appearance. But the story goes, if she does leave with a young gentleman, she would accept the ride home, give them vague directions, usually leading north on Archer Avenue. But once they got near the cemetery gates, she would vanish. Yeah. However, that's not to say that Mary ended up in a ballroom for eternity, because 
there is a more popular version of this story that's more often reported. Yeah, that's on the road. Exactly. Which, by the way, ballrooms aren't around so much anymore. Right. But people are sure driving around. Sure. So just to make that point. <laughs> right. Listen to this quote from Choi's website. More common were the claims of motorists who would see the girl walking along the road. They would offer her a ride and then witness her vanishing from their car. These drivers could describe the girl in detail, and nearly every single description precisely matched the previous accounts. The girl was said to have light blonde hair, blue eyes, and be wearing a white party dress. Some more attentive drivers would sometimes add that she wore a thin shawl or dancing shoes and that she had a small clutch purse, end quote. Right, which are some interesting details that Troy mentions here. Yeah. Uh, because again, as I mentioned before, little details come in and out. Sometimes she doesn't have a clutch purse. Usually not, I would say. Or a shawl. And that's one thing that people notice is that she's usually seen in winter at night. It's very cold out. If you've ever been to Chicago, you know. Or just yeah. watch the news. And she has no coat on. So that catches people's attention immediately because it's not like she's sitting there shaking or shivering. She seems fine. She's just got no coat. Yeah. Again, that gets people's attention like something's wrong here. So those are some interesting elements to the whole story. But some of the encounters were even more frightening than seeing a strange person by the side of the road who doesn't fit and gives you the willies. Because as some drivers have claimed, a woman fitting that description actually ran out in front of their cars and they hit her before they could stop. And they would describe hearing the sickening thud as they hit her. But when they got out of their cars... Nothing there. Exactly. She was gone. Yeah. I mean, imagine this. It's like the specter passing through the car as you hit them. Like the Matrix with the twins. Remember the twins? <laughs> yeah. They ended up in the back seat. Yeah, they got to choose yeah. when they materialized, which I was like, now that is cool. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, this usually happened when they were near the cemetery. Yeah. Near the front gate. By the way, it's not the first matrix. It's the... Sorry. Number two, yes. Yeah, thank you. So again, it's a specific location. And imagine how shocking that is. And you feel terrible because it's like, oh my gosh, I've hit somebody. They pull over. They look around. She's gone. There's nothing there. And you think you've done something horrible. You've hit somebody and, and they might be dead. Yeah. And you know what? The interesting thing about that is that's one of the cases that's in the Unsolved Mysteries on Resurrection Mary. Right. It's Janet L. Kalal. She's riding along with a, a friend who I guess is unidentified. October 1989, they're on an evening drive and something ran in front of the car. They slammed on the brakes. But in their case, there was no impact. But they both saw it. They freaked out. They stopped the car. They got out. Nothing there. Yeah, exactly. Well, then how were these stories getting relayed to other people? Because even if you're making it up, you got to tell somebody. So what would happen is that these drivers, especially if you thought you hit somebody and you were a decent citizen, you ran to either a local business along Archer Road or you tried to call the police and you tried to get them out there and uh, and investigate. Well, if that first guy had done that, none of this would have ever happened. Uh <laughs> <laughs> maybe not. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe she did turn into a, a vengeful type of spirit. Yeah, indeed. But a lot of people went into the Justice Illinois Police Department to report what had happened. And this adds to the overall stories of the legends because the police officers themselves hear the stories. They tell people here and there. So someone would run into a place like Chet's Melody Lounge and talk to the bartender or the patrons like, hey, anybody see a, a blonde woman? Very pretty. I think she's walking by the side of the road. I may have hit her. And they're like, no, there was no one in here like that. But we know who you're talking about, maybe. Sit down and have a drink. <laughs> you're going to need it. 
I am so ready to go hang out on Archer Road right now. Uh, there's some, <laughs> there are some fun places there still yeah, yeah. that we're going to talk about because there's some very famed and infamous establishments along that road, which add to the whole history and mystery of the place because it's not just an innocent dance hall that was there at the time. We're talking about the Roaring Twenties in Chicago. But now let's get to some of the key elements of the Resurrection Mary story, because again, I said, you know, things are added, they're taken away. Sometimes there's dancing shoes, sometimes not, sometimes a purse, a shawl, no coat. What are the major elements of the story, though, that seem to be prevalent in all of the tellings? Well, the first one is the white dress, and that she's wearing a white, as described, a dancing dress, a ball gown, Party dress. Yeah, yeah. something a young woman in the 1930s would wear. And often described as a young woman with means, like a nice dress. It was a nice dress. Yeah, Yeah, it was a nice dress. That's what's noticeable because as she's seen in the generations after that, now it starts to become vintage. She's not aging. Right. Her clothes aren't. However, some people describe a white dress, but it looks like it's been left out in the sun, like it's aged. It's faded a little. Well, if you wear it and walk down the road all the time for oh, years well, and years. Yeah, but it's at night. One guy did see aging. her at three in the afternoon, a cyclist. You know, that's, that's, <laughs> yes, exactly. There, there are all variations. That's kind of the point here is yeah. we get into these stories. You'll see all manner of, mostly in the same locations, but the details are slightly different. And so that adds to the story. And the other thing is what she looks like. Exactly, because as much as the dress never changes, she's always a very pretty blonde with blue eyes and very pale, and if you get to touch her, cold, clammy skin. And people have said that her skin almost looks powdered, or she looks like she's glowing. And it's the eyes. When she looks at you, it's like she stares right through your soul. And that gets people's attention. Didn't stop Jerry Palis from asking her to dance. She was still a pretty young woman, so he's, yeah. you know, and again, I get the feeling that's yeah. Jerry's going to make that move. <laughs> he's gonna, well, as he described himself, it's like, uh, I'm, I'm not shy. Yeah, yeah, I'm not, you know, I got a lot of confidence here, and uh, she's by herself. She looks like she could use a dance. Well, my favorite thing, because his story, of course, is told in uh, The Unsolved Mysteries, again, episode 97, that talks about Resurrection Mary. My favorite thing is hearing Robert Stack said, uh, Jerry Pallas, who could, you do it. Jerry Pallas, who considered himself a bit of a ladies' man. There we go. <laughs> Unpracticed. I loved it, though. You know, and again, that kind of points to Jerry maybe being a character, you know, but he's never really made any money off this. It's not like he's selling no, tickets a good to the point. story. He's pretty somber when he tells a story. Exactly. And I would say he's enough of a character not to be too shy to talk about it. Yeah. That's how I see it, is that he's confident enough. It's like, yeah, I know it sounds crazy, but <laughs> I'm going to tell you this story because it happened. So that startling effect, actually, her looking at you, Jerry describes it as well. It's a very deep, piercing blue eyes, but her look is so startling, it actually caused one driver to veer off the road. And when the police showed up, that's all he could describe. It's like, well, why'd you run off the road? He's like, I, here's her look. By the way, I wanted to mention, because I don't think we have mentioned it yet, this is a predominantly Polish area. She, yeah. is, she is described as being of Polish descent, as are pretty much everyone involved, the police, the witnesses, everybody. It's, right. There's a lot of Polish people in this story, which is, I think, interesting. It just tells you a little bit about, like you might envision, what she looks like. Exactly. So when immigrants first started moving into the Des Plaines area there by the river, there was Italians, there was Poles, Germans, a lot of immigrants. But that neighborhood specifically in what is now today Willowbrook and the Justice suburbs of Chicago, and we're talking, uh, they call themselves Southwest Siders, I think, or that's the term for them. That particular area has been a very heavily 
Polish Catholic community for a long time, at least probably since the 20s and 30s. So that's why you see a lot of the cemeteries there being uh, Roman Catholic and uh, run by the Archdiocese of Chicago. That's another point, though, is that it's a geographical anchor here. Most all of these sightings are taking place all along Archer Avenue near Resurrection Cemetery, hence the name Resurrection Mary. But that's not the only cemetery there because there's a few others, Bethania or Bethania and Fairmont. And Fairmont has no shortage of its own stories. No, they're all haunted. (laughs) They all have their own ghosts uh, and their own uh, inherent ghost stories. But what cemetery doesn't, really? Yeah. Also in the area, the road is home to, I believe, Archer Woods Cemetery, known today as Mount Glenwood Memory Gardens West and St. James of the Sag Church Cemetery. And another factor is that Mary, of course, owing to the being on the date and that going kind of sour, if you believe the origin story, she usually only appears to men. Or if there's a woman there, it's in the company of another man. So as a passenger in a car with a guy driving, but usually it's only men who encounter her. So is that something about the ballroom and the social situation? Except for Janet Kalal, who Ah. was riding with a female friend when they thought they hit her. That was on the Unsolved Oh, yeah. That was two ladies in a car. Right. There's another account of a woman seeing uh, somebody curled up by the side of the road. That's one of my favorites. She had the coolest car in all these stories, by the way. (laughs) 1965 Mustang. That is true. And she uh, she had a CB, which is extra cool. Yeah. But the point is that most of these fit a pattern, but not everything. These aren't hard and fast rules. She only doesn't appear at an exact spot. She's all along the road to various people, but these are seemingly recurring patterns and hallmarks of this story. There is some connection to a dance hall or something social where a young woman and young men would be seen hanging out and enjoying themselves. By the way, and this plays into a whole larger picture of philosophical approach to the idea of Resurrection Mary and the possibility that she represents lost innocence and, and that sort of thing, which of course we will get to probably more likely in part two or a later part of this series if it expands, which I'm getting the feeling it might. Um, <laughs> but the dance hall thing is really fascinating because even though Jerry Palis' story starts out at Liberty Grove and Hall, the most famously associated dance hall with Resurrection Mary is the Willowbrook, which was originally the O. Henry, O.H. Henry. And uh, we have got so much to tell you about that coming up. But I think that's really fascinating because you've got Palos' story, which has got corroboration. Yeah, very nice. (laughs) And uh, details, and he's been interviewed and all that. But a lot of the stories seem to center around the Willowbrook dance hall, which recently burned down in 2016. Yeah, exactly. For the 17th time. Well, that <laughs> that's, it's got its own story, but not yeah. that many. No, and, I know, and maybe but. it's and, and really nothing paranormal, but maybe a stretch of bad luck. But look, it's been around for so long, yeah. Because a dance hall of some type or a social building, let's say, has existed since at least 1921 and probably was some kind of a structure in maybe 1915, 1916. I can't wait to talk about its history. Yeah, it's really so, so to see that idea is that it's not all that innocent, the buildings themselves. Yeah. There's a lot of history and, and not all of it's good. Yeah. And so now we have, uh, I actually, I think that's one of the, the names is the Chicago's Triangle. A weird stuff. Yeah. Because you're now anchoring these points of Resurrection Cemetery and Willowbrook Dance Hall and Archer Road. And everything along those points 
And businesses and spots along the way are all hot spots of seeing Resurrection Mary. And by the way, we're calling it Archer Road. I'm not sure what the locals do. I think it might now be called Archer Avenue for the most part. Well, it turns one turns into another, but, but we'll when describe it was, that. Yeah. I'm sure back in the 30s, it was Archer Road. When Jerry Palis tells his story on tape, he says Archer Road. So. Right, exactly. So we'll, we'll describe that in a little bit here. The other thing that's prevalent is, of course, it always usually involves a car. Unless she's already at the dance hall. But even then, that involves a ride home. So it's a car ride or hitchhiking, something involving travel, destinations. Sometimes when you're... When we're doing this show and you're talking to me, I feel like we're playing that old game, uh, TV game show game, Password. Like I'm waiting oh, for you. You're like, it involves what it, and I'm like, uh, uh, um, transportation. Two words. <laughs> yeah. Because Scott, this points to the larger picture and it's not my rules. Now these are forced patterns <laughs> that I'm, I'm trying to observe here. Wait, but, your dress patterns? No, no, no. Oh. The uh, the patterns of the paranormal. Oh, we're not talking about your dress. No, no. But again, here addresses dress is involved. So it's, it's articles of tactile things that bridge into the other side, beyond the veil, into the world of the paranormal, things that last. And here it's the shoes. It's the dress you were buried in. When you hear people talk about uh, seeing dead relatives, I certainly have one in my own family where somebody saw somebody as a young person back when they were fit and handsome and in a military uniform, idealized as they would like to be remembered at the fit and the, the prime of their life. She, I feel again, like I'm going to be picking an earlier moment in my own life, but I can barely <laughs> then, use my left arm. Then right now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So there's some kind of connective uh, tissue there, shall we say. But in this case, under the heading of travel, it's destinations. It's going home, whether it's a house or a grave. You're going home to rest. She wants to be taken somewhere. That's her one request. If she gets in the car and you talk to her, She doesn't say much usually. She has spoken words to people, but it's hard to draw, you know, conversation out of her. When you get in the car and she agrees to a ride, it's usually like, take me up Archer Avenue. She's trying to get somewhere continually, eternally. So that's interesting. But talk a little bit about these pathways, as I said, these destination spots, these lines of energy. Well, we touched on this the first time I really gave much notice to it was when we did the Mothman series, and we were talking about where Indrid Cold was encountered right. by Woody Derenberger. And it's interesting because there's these confluence points that are along these routes that represent ancient routes of travel that go all the way back to probably when any sentient, bipedal, human-like creature was wandering around. Yeah. And we'll talk more about that when we discuss the history of Archer Road, which is indeed fascinating. But it's more than just a road. Archer Avenue is more than just a street. It is something that has been there going all the way back to Native Americans and probably even earlier. And we'll discuss all those elements when we get to the section on the history of Resurrection Cemetery and Archer Road, because some of them are fascinating. And they're really a part of this story, which is now much more than just a ghost story. So one of my favorite elements here, the final one that I could think of, is one of my favorite story aspects of any story, really, and that is the ever-present story button or hook that we mentioned. And in this case, with Resurrection Mary, the guy comes back the next day to the address that she gave him, and as Scott mentioned before, he finds out that she had died years ago. And what makes the story better, of course, is if it's an anniversary day, as we said. An anniversary just makes for a better story. If you want to look at it as urban legend, if you want to look at it as somebody embellishing 
an encounter that wasn't all that spicy to begin with. Right. So there's another version of Resurrection Mary and meeting her, and that's what I talked about, uh, something tactile. Not only just what she's wearing, but sometimes what the guy is wearing. Because in this alternate version, the gentleman she's with offers her his coat. Because, again, it's a Chicago winter, and either he sees her on the road and she's cold, or they leave the ballroom that way. And, you know, being gentlemanly, he gives her the jacket, and they leave the ballroom, and they proceed along Archer Avenue because that's her request. And when they get to the cemetery, she either bolts or disappears from the car. One version we'll relay here is that uh, she runs off and kind of disappears when she gets to the gate. He goes after her, this young gentleman, because she's still got his jacket, and she's nowhere to be found. But, of course, he comes back the next day, and he finds his jacket, and it's neatly folded on top of her gravestone. So it's on her gravestone. But with that story, you'd think he would be able to get a name. Yeah. <laughs> like, Ready to pick the jacket up? Look right. at the name. Right. <laughs> Forget about that right now. What if That's it was just, like you know. John Jackson? It's like, well, what? Then, well, then oh. she dropped it off. <laughs> yeah, I, I think in that case, uh, you know, it's still weird. Yeah. But it's got to be her gravestone, you know, because that's part of the story where you go back to the house from the address he was given, and the older woman there says, yes, but she's passed away several years now. You get confirmation. It's either the photo, you look over, there's the photo of her. That's the confirmation part. He goes back and he gets the jacket. It's on top of the gravestone. The name on the headstone is confirmation that it's Mary. Yeah. That's kind of the story part of the element. I'm not saying those types of stories are untrue for anyone that has one or or has told one. But to me, that is part of the folkloric part of this. But even with all these variations in this story, there's still something common to them all. It's something that's very important about Mary, right? Yeah, one thing is very important to note, and I think if this was a real person and we're trying to be respectful, of course, is that she was benevolent. She's not out for vengeance. She's not out for revenge. Because unlike some other tales of ladies in white, nothing bad seems to ever happen to the people who encounter her. You don't say her name three times and then she comes to kill you or even appears in your bathroom mirror for a selfie. She's the one to whom something bad has happened, but she's not looking to make that right with anyone. It's just she's forever tragic, if you know what I'm saying. So she just wants to engage with the living just a little bit more and then return to her resting place. Hi, this is Summer Sesh Chili, Navajo from the Navajo Reservation. I approve the Skinwalker episodes. Now back to the show. Okay, now let's talk a little bit about what we call the Marys. Let me tell you, there's a lot of them. There's a lot of potential Marys to be the real Resurrection Mary. A lot of people have done a lot of research on this. Yes, they have. Well, there's a lot of hypotheses and theories. And like any folklore people sometimes want to be connected to it, whether they actually are or not. They want to be part of the story. So we'll see some claims here in this section where people have claimed to have known the real Resurrection Mary. And they put forth a name, and to varying degrees, it's accurate, but some more than others. And so what we're going to look at here first are probably the two most popular theories of who Mary really was, who is this real person? Because here's another thing I want to say is, as far as the philosophy goes. I believe that with ghosts and things that happen on the other side, and they're so mysterious, we here on this side 
of life, the living, really desperately want to understand what happens, and we want to make a connection. And so there's a real desire here to find out who is this Mary, because in the supernatural realm, and I, I personally believe there is one, there might be a thousand different possibilities and things going on about what's possible, what's happening, what are we seeing? So it may not be a singular answer, but I think we're all looking for that, is that this person died, they're the ghost, that's it, that's what's happening. Sure, we still don't believe in ghosts, but... Yeah, look, it's Tom, but, <laughs> but he's, now he's over there and you can't touch him, but it's yeah. Tom. What you don't... He's the same as he was when he died. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Yeah. It makes sense. More sense, anyway. A lot of people don't believe that. They don't believe in an afterlife, and that's fine. That's your choice. But if you entertain the idea, then you want a one-to-one connection, I believe. And what's really disturbing is if there's 25 Marys. Yeah. And they're all the ones that people are seeing. Yeah. Now what's going on? Yeah. That doesn't make sense. Before we start this, I wanted to say that as a little preamble that what you're going to see here is trying to find a person that fits this profile, that fits this legend, because that's then what makes sense. It's a person we can point to. And it's like, oh, there she is. It's her uh, spirit that's not at rest. And now we can rest a little. At least we know who it is. Yeah, right. So, exactly. Uh, right. First up, I think, is maybe the most popular theory on who Mary is, or at least the one that comes up the most, that we do know some real-life information about, and that is Mary Bergovi. So the accident that caused her death is briefly reported in the Chicago Tribune of March 11th, 1934, and it reads, On the night of March 10th, 1934, Mary Bergovi was in a vehicle driven by John Thole, 25, from Chicago. Also in the vehicle were John Riker, 23, of Park Ridge, and Virginia Rosansky, 22, from Chicago. The vehicle struck an L substructure at Lake Street and Wacker Drive. Mary died from severe head injury and shock while en route to Iroquois Hospital, which is a small emergency hospital started with funds donated from families of victims of the Iroquois Theater fire. So that's an excerpt of the newspaper clipping. Now, here's uh, somebody we're going to be mentioning, too, because I think he's done a lot of great research, and that's Dale Kazmarek. And Dale is with the Ghost Research Society, and his website is ghostresearch.org. So he's done a great entry on the whole story with a lot of great facts and accounts. But basically, he's summing up this story here, and I believe he's also pulling from another article. Uh, and it's Girl Killed in Crash, Miss Mary's, and that's maybe spelled wrong or it's a nickname, Bergovi, 21 years old, 4611 South Damon Avenue, was killed last night when the auto in which she was riding cracked up at, and there's a word missing here from the article, Blank Street. However, we think that might be Lake Street and Wacker Drive. And then he lists the names again. John Riker, 23, 15 North Knight Street, Park Ridge. Suffered a possible skull fracture. It is in the county hospital. John Thole, 25, 5216 South Loomis, driver of the car, and Miss Virginia Rosansky, 22 of 4849 South Lincoln, which is now Wolcott, were shaken up and scratched. The scene of the accident is known to police as a danger spot. Thole told police he did not see the L substructure. L just means elevated track support for overhead, like, rail system. Right, exactly. So, so these bars come down yeah. the road. Just uh, if you've seen Bullet, you've seen him race under. Oh, no, that, yeah, I think <laughs> that, that was New been, York. That might have been a road, though. That wasn't an L. Yeah, there was but, a, yeah. yeah. 
But the L in New York now is a park, actually, because there aren't any more L's. They used to have uh, lots of L's everywhere. They were all torn down, but the one remaining one has been turned into a park. Yes, right, right. Uh, for some time now, but uh, yeah. it's really nice. But Chicago has working L's. Still. Yes, right. Yeah. You can see the uh, the trains go by elevated. Yeah. So yeah. that's what he hit back in that day and probably wasn't well lit. And Mary Bergovi ended up being killed. Now, there's a lot of reasons that people think that she's a good fit for this. Well, one... She's buried in Resurrection Cemetery along with her parents. So her parents, Stefan and Johanna Bregovi, are also buried along with Mary, according to the death certificate. So we know that for a fact. She's interred there. And here's another interesting thing that Adam Selzer dug up in his book, The Resurrection Mary Files, Chicago's Most Famous Ghost Story. And Adam's actually going to be on the show later in this series. We're interviewing him. He has a little section on Mary that I thought was interesting. Talks about where she actually met the guys she was with. She met them at a place called the Goldblatt Brothers Department Store. And this was in April of 1934. And he writes, they seem to have been out dancing and perhaps went ballroom hopping around the south side where Mary lived at 4611 South Damon, which jibes with Jerry Palis's story about the South Damon address. So Mm -hmm. just something to keep in mind. And we'll talk about that more as this series continues. And there were the three people in the car that Forrest already mentioned, and they hit the L structure. And later he goes on to talk about how they interviewed John Satala, who operated the Satala Funeral Home which is where she was buried. And in this interview, at which point he was in his 80s, uh, apparently he had a cigar and he was speaking to reporters about Miss Bergovi. And he said, quote, she was a hell of a nice girl, very pretty. She was buried in an orchid dress. And he opened a huge record book and smoked as he flipped to a page of her records. Now I recall she died in an auto accident. I remember having to sew up the side of her face. Very pretty. Right. So. Well, that's a good description. Now, reiterating how folklorist and ghost hunter Richard Crow describes Mary. Crow says, well, when this is interesting, a quote from him, Resurrection Mary is definitely real. I've talked to enough people decade upon decade to know something is taking place. And he describes Mary as very beautiful, blonde, blue-eyed woman with shoulder-length hair of Polish descent, 18 or 19 years old. She is wearing a white or pale dancing dress and slippers. She is very rarely seen by women. Crow goes on to say, Mary doesn't seem to be one person. There is a problem with identifying her. So he's now piecing together ideas that there may be several ghosts. That's what we're getting at here. Although most of them fit that description, what he just said, blonde, blue-eyed, very pretty, wearing a white dress. So I was pulling that information from an article from the Chicago Tribune called Deathly Dancer, Resurrection Mary Still Wanders Amid the Myths on Frightful Nights, published October 25, 1992, written by Elizabeth Williamson. And she goes on to comment about Crow's comment there that she seems to be hard to identify until now because she thinks she has a theory, and that is those who work at Resurrection Cemetery and many members of Chicago's Southwest Side Eastern European community not only know the story of Resurrection Mary, they know of its inspiration. While reluctant to discuss the subject, they agree that the source of the Resurrection Mary legend is Mary Bergovi, a young woman who died in a car accident in 1934. None of them agrees that the stories of her ghost haunting the cemetery and surrounding areas are true. So they, they kind of know who it is that people are talking about, but they're reluctant to say they believe in it. Now, she goes on to interview and quote Chet Kowalkowski, aged 53 at that time, of Lockport, who maintains the giant resurrection mausoleum. And he says, 
It's all a myth. I worked here for 25 years. I used to patrol the grounds at Halloween, and during the blizzard of 1979, I slept in the mausoleum because I couldn't make it home. Believe me, at night, nothing here moves. So, total disbeliever. Now, the only thing I will say about that is that working for decades at a place that's supposedly haunted doesn't necessarily ensure that you're going to see anything. As yeah. I said, way nor, back Nor does spending one night. Exactly. So <laughs> I worked on a video shoot with a guy who was, the, I believe, the chief engineer of the Queen Mary for over 20 years. And we were, of course, asking him a few questions. And he said, no, I mean, people see it all the time. I kind of believe that they do. I've heard some weird noises that shouldn't be there, you know, when you're down in the bowels of the ship. But he said, I've never seen anything. Now, he said, I don't discount that other people have. I just personally have it. And I've been on this thing for about 25 years. So not necessarily a guarantee that you're, you're bound to see something, which is interesting. Now, the article goes on to say, the Bergovi name and story were more universally known by those Kowalkowski calls the old timers, many now retired or deceased, and the former sexton, Thaddeus Dronsky, who died in 1990. Mary's name was eventually provided by a cemetery grounds worker who requested anonymity. Her date of death and grave location were confirmed by current sexton, John Gatchik. It sounds pretty good, right? It sounds like it's lining up. Seems like it might, but that's not all the details. No, it is not, because there's some issues some here. Some have been conveniently <laughs> left out. Well, it's getting back to the, my little preamble there. You're wanting to tie this up with a bow, so to speak, and have Get an answer. cognitive closure on it. Exactly, because it's kind of disturbing, especially if you live in the area. And there are a couple of descriptive issues here with Mary Bergovi. Well, the biggest one being the fact that she was a brunette. Well, exactly. We have photos of her. Yeah. And people knew her of the time. We're not talking about the 1830s here. Yeah. So because Mary had short, dark hair, that rules out what people are seeing universally almost, which is long blonde hair and blue eyes. And the other thing she was buried in an orchid-colored dress. Right, which I mentioned earlier that Satala described who ran the funeral home. Exactly, right. So there's that connection and that orchid, I believe in this case, is a vibrant, bright purple. Yeah, it was described as purple in some other publications. Exactly. So if you're going to go by that in that she's showing up in the manner that she died and was buried in, according to the legend, this dress also does not fit. Now, it's also some... really hard to see at night, just for the <laughs> well, record. It's a light purple, sure. Yeah. But white, that fits the lady in white scenario. Yeah. This is a different thing. That goes to my point that there might be a, a bunch of different things going on here. Well, here's the other interesting thing. Quaid, who's in the research core and also one of the mods of our Facebook group and a frequent contributor to the show in that way, did some distance calculations. And it's pretty interesting how this works out. <laughs> you want to think about having to walk around Chicago, especially by yourself at night. He wrote, according to the news clipping of her death, she lived at 4611 South Damon Avenue. Again, remember that that's the same street that Jerry Palis said that his Mary told him that she lived on. Now, that's 30 minutes by car nowadays, and walking to that address would be about four and a half hours. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so in the news clippings, also talk about the accident that she died in being downtown on Wacker Drive. So that's even further away from the ballroom. 
Right. So the distances... It's a long walk. People are not walking four and a half hours, <laughs> dancing, and then walking four and a half hours home. Right. Well, you're mad now. Of course, you might think you're going to get a ride. Right. And and so if you try and hammer that one into the original legend, it's like, well, she's really upset. She's going to march, you know, in the cold weather by herself and probably thumb for a ride, figuring somebody will pick me up here. Yeah. There's a lot of activity on this street. Again, yeah. this was a hugely popular ballroom at the time. Right. And, and, and was for, yeah, many, many years. And Archer's very busy with both the dead and the undead. Exactly. So now as for the car crash on March 10th, 1934, here's a little interesting tidbit. Kristen had dug up in the river here in our ark. Mary wasn't originally seated in the front seat. Virginia Rosansky was seated in the front seat, but asked Mary to switch with her because Virginia didn't want to sit beside John Thole, which, you know, was a decision that saved her life and ended up killing Mary. And she's getting this information from Troy Taylor, who we mentioned earlier, the author. And on the page, what she noted that that was interesting is that it states that the cemetery has two Mary Bergovies, adding to the confusion. But again, a large Polish community here. Yeah, of course. So the other slightly older Mary is buried in Section MM, Site 9819. Now, again, that's another one where they're not giving out burial locations. That's guarded information because people are putting this together. They're interested. They're flooding the site, possibly. So we don't know about the information. It seems to be closely guarded when people ask. The other one, which is believed to be the Resurrection Mary, her grave is not marked, according to Mrs. Stefan Bergovi. Now, the reason is, is that it was a term grave. And what is that, Scott? Well, a term grave, it's a spot that you get for 25 years. And at the end of the 25 years, if you don't, I guess, pay up, right. you get moved, disinterred. Uh, uh-huh. That's my understanding. And this may be an antiquated practice. I'm not convinced they're still doing it. It was difficult to find anything. really. Going to the website for the cemetery today, there is absolutely nothing mentioned about that. But I would think even if they were still doing it, they probably changed the nomenclature. They probably call it something else. But at the time, what would happen is, I guess, you would get this grave for 25 years. At the end of the 25 years, if the family can't continue to pay for it and basically lease on the space where the person is buried, a person gets moved to a less desirable location. Yeah, yeah, right. This obviously would be, if you believe in the afterlife and the idea of disinterring folks yeah. without their express permission right. being maybe a bad idea, yeah. uh, then... Term graves seem like one of the worst ideas of all time. <laughs> well, it's, it's still, you know, at the end of the day, it's still a business, and yeah. all they have to sell are space yeah. and supplies. Yeah, but, it's real but, estate. Yeah, exactly. It's it's real estate, and so uh, you know, we're trying to be respectful, and mistakes happen. We see that in the news all the time to this day. Things getting mixed up, shall we say? There, here in this case, she's buried there somewhere. It's unmarked, and so maybe only the family knows, or maybe they're in the old records of the cemetery, but they're not really telling anybody because they don't want people going, poking around. And, and also, you know, something we talked about with uh, Parashani, people vandalize stuff. Yeah. It's just, yeah. So yeah. you're trying to avoid that. Heading towards a summation, at least on the case of Mary Bergovi, we can get a conclusion from author Troy Taylor again. And, oh, his website is prairieghosts.com. A lot of great information there. So he kind of recaps why this is maybe not the best fit for being Resurrection Mary, and that uh, even though she was killed in an auto accident in 1934, it's unlikely that she was returning home from the O. Henry Ballroom, as a lot of people have claimed. The accident in which she was killed took place on Wacker Drive in downtown Chicago, so you're a long ways away, as Scott just mentioned. So the location's kind of wrong. The car she was riding in collided with an elevated train support, and she was thrown through the windshield. 
Now, this is a far cry from being killed by a hit-and-run driver on Archer Avenue. So the details of the accident... Doesn't line up. If you're going to go back to that very vague origin story right. that if everyone they, seems to canon, agree on, yeah. that's what I'm saying, is yeah. that people are trying to nail this thing or these cases to that, and it's not really lining up. Yeah. But here are some interesting points that lead to another ghost story of sorts. So Taylor says again, Bergovi did not resemble the phantom that has been reported either. According to memory and photographs, she had short, dark hair, which is the opposite of the fair-skinned blonde ghost. Besides that, the undertaker who prepared Bergovi for her funeral, John Satala, has an interesting note to the story. And he says, in fact, he may have been the person who caused the confusion between spectral Marys in the first place. In a newspaper interview many years ago, Satala mentioned a caretaker at Resurrection Cemetery who told him that he had seen a ghost on the cemetery grounds, and the caretaker believed the ghost was that of Mary Bergovi. So we're talking about a separate ghost right? dressed in purple. And the fact that John Satala, the undertaker, again mentions it to a newspaper as a separate thing, that gets blended into the story of Resurrection Mary, which we've seen this before in newspapers. That happens. Yeah. Somebody mentions something and, uh, oh, horns on a giant, bingo, headlines. After the article came out in 1983, Vern Rutkowski, who knew Mary Bergovi in real life, produced several faded photographs showing Mary standing on the running board of old Model A's and T's. That's interesting about the running board there. But people, yeah. a lot of people did that. I mean, my elders, they would stand on the running board and take yeah, photos. that's why I was there. Well, <laughs> it's one of the uses. Yeah, and the cars were cool, you know? Yeah, no, that was, that's a common pose. But yeah. that does fit kind of with her initially jumping on the running boards of moving cars. Yeah. However, these photographs show her, again, as having short brown or dark wavy hair cut just past the cheekbones and not the long blonde hair always reported in the Resurrection Mary Encounters. A 1992 Chicago Tribune article indicated that records kept at the Satala Funeral Home described Mary Bergovi as a 17-year-old factory worker who died en route to the Iroquois Hospital, even though death records clearly indicate she was just a month shy of her 22nd birthday. So that's another discrepancy. Yeah. So again, about the right age, and some things fit. She's named Mary. That's another thing that we were talking about. It's like people are looking to make Mary the match. Right. Even though... You might be looking a little too hard. Right. Even though not everyone has heard her say her name is Mary, but that's Very enough Very few to go people on. have. Right. And sometimes, and what you do in a story like this, I think when lots of people are seeing, even if these are lots of different types of encounters and people are trying to label it, then you can't come up with something. It's right. Mary, it's like John Doe. You put a name on it, the name gets around, everybody says, okay, well, it's Resurrection Mary. Resurrection for the cemetery and Mary because that's what everybody says they see. Yeah. All because Jerry Palis said, she said her name was Mary. Right. Right. You, you got to take that all with a grain of salt, but still, it's pretty interesting. And no, I think there's a lot no. of people that will tell you that it's Bergovi for sure. To me, it just doesn't line up just from the very fact that she's a brunette. Right. In a dark dress. Yeah. And was nowhere near the ballroom and was not killed in a hit and run, but rather thrown through a windshield in yeah. a horrible accident. So, right. uh, you know. But what I love about this story of Resurrection Mary is that there's a bunch of different ghost stories embedded within it that are separate. Yeah. It's exactly. en- it's encompassing a lot of other stories because this is kind of a hotbed of, uh, you know, ghost activity here. But anyway, so Mary's one of the more popular and prominent theories because, again, you have a solid lead on an actual person. Hello, everyone. I'm Cassidy Price, and this is Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. This next candidate for being Resurrection Mary, she comes in number two on pretty much every researcher's list, at least as the person who's been reported as most likely to be her. 
which I find kind of surprising for reasons that are going to present themselves as we go on here. Yeah. This is uh, Anna Maria Norcus, who died in 1927. And Maria, I believe it's a Polish spelling, is M-A-R-I-J-A. Hopefully yeah. I'm saying it right. It might be Maria. Maria. Yeah, yeah probably, Maria. but also a version of Mary. Yes, a yeah. version of Mary. All right. So is this girl Resurrection Mary? Can you tell us a little bit about what happened to her for us? Well, here's the rundown of the tragic accident. So on the night of July 20th, 1927, so that date frame is right or would fit, Coming back from the O. Henry Ballroom, that also fits, now called the Willowbrook Ballroom on Archer Avenue, Anna's father did not see the 25-foot railroad cut hole in the roadway at 66th and Harlem Avenue. Anna was crushed under the vehicle. Yeah, the car flipped. And, uh, you know, 1927, I'm not sure why that wasn't marked a little better. (laughs) Well, right. You know, back then they did not have as many safety precautions, of course. Yeah. When cars first came out, I don't believe they had safety glass. Yeah, that's true. Uh, So sandwiching a a clear piece of plastic between two panes was a later development called safety glass. Yes. So things are a little more dangerous back then. A lot Um, more. They weren't as crowded, but you did have danger. It's like hitting the L support. I'm guessing there's no reflectors on that. Yeah. You're kind of at your own risk here. And cars had the other thing is when you look at what happened to poor Mary Bergovi. Yeah. Um... Cars, when they were first built, they had no absorption zones of any kind. Now right. when a car frame is built, they put creases in the frame and in the body and all do- kinds of places that are designed to absorb energy in the event of a collision. Yeah. Back then, that energy was not absorbed by the collision. It was absorbed when the car ejected you right. from the cabin. You're still in motion. You get to stay in motion because none of the energy is accepted by the car in the case of an accident. Right. And like you said about the safety glass, what that means is that when the glass breaks, you've got thousands and thousands of really sharp knives flying through the air. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, your, your protection Horrible. back then, it's like the 1946 Ford our family has. It's a tank. Yeah. And that's your protection is that it's a big steel bubble. So unlike now, you can push the car fender in with your hand. Yeah. But they have crumple zones, so much safer now. So officially, Anna Norcus is buried at St. Casimir Cemetery in Chicago. But this is disputed, right? There's a little bit of... uh, not contention, but there's... part of the legend suggests that she was buried at Resurrection Cemetery. The interesting thing about this is what they had said was that they wanted to bury her at Casimir, but they couldn't because there was a gravedigger strike. In fact, uh, there was a section, I I read this in, again, in uh, Seltzer's book, and this is what it says about her. She was supposed to be buried at St. Casimir Cemetery, but rumor had it that a gravedigger strike may have forced her parents to put her in a term grave at Resurrection, even though they placed her headstone at St. Casimir. This was the first time I learned of the phrase term grave in uh, Seltzer's book, and I was dismayed by the idea of it. I, I already had mentioned this a few minutes ago, but the concept is that it's a temporary arrangement. And it, it makes sense financially because what's happening here is the family probably couldn't afford to bury her at Resurrection Cemetery, maybe. Or, or may, I can't say probably. I don't know anything about her family. Mm-hmm. But maybe they couldn't afford to bury her, or maybe it was just too far away or whatever. But that's how the story goes. So <laughs> there's some debate as to whether or not that happened, and then maybe she would have been moved or disinterred and moved to Casimir. However, there are no records that indicate that that's what happened at all. In fact, by all official indications, she is buried at St. Casimir and probably was from the beginning. Just right. something to note about this whole situation. Right. Now, the headstone is somewhere else? No, the headstone is at St. Casimir, and oh, that's, that's where right. it was. Oh, okay. So that was the story, was that she was in maybe an unmarked term grave right. at Resurrection, and then a headstone got set up at St. Casimir, which is kind of a an after-the-fact convenient detail, I think, about 
her location. It's because if somebody said, well, she's buried at Resurrection, and everyone says, no, it's here's her headstone. And they say, oh, well, that's just the headstone. Yeah. Uh, right. The reality is, it seems like she was always at St. Casimir. Right. But there's another really poignant fact about her, and it's the reason that I have a hard time believing that she could have been Resurrection Mary, if there is such a thing as a single being, mm-hmm. being Resurrection Mary. It's the age, because Anna Norcus died about six weeks shy of her 13th birthday. She was nowhere near the age that aligns with the Resurrection Mary stories. So I'm not sure how she wound up being such a prominent figure in the list of possible people for being Resurrection Mary. And the other strange factor with regard to Resurrection Mary is, oh, the story about her being on her way home from the O. Henry Ballroom doesn't make sense either, because all the people in her car... They were not the right ages. They were, it would seem more like a family. Uh, it was William yeah. Wasner, 32, Loretta Guazd, 14 years old, August Norcus, 42, that was Anna's father, Sophie Norcus, her sister, who was 16, and Adam Lewicki, 58, who died in the accident. So it doesn't really make a lot of sense. But right, it, her right. name comes up on every list when you're looking at uh, potential resurrection marriage. Well, there's a few things that do hit. I mean, she was blonde. We True. Had, there's pictures of her. I think she is in, wearing some kind of traditional headdress. Yes. And she has what looks to be blonde bobbed hair. Yeah. But not the long blonde curls. Yeah. That are She's often described. Girl. Yes. Yeah. Probably blue eyed. She looks to have light colored eyes from the black and white photo. So we know what she looks like. Yeah. But again, she's very young for this. They may have been dancing. I mean, it wasn't, uh, I think some occasions were all ages, so it wasn't just kind of a nightclub atmosphere. Yeah. However, some things like the distances maybe don't make sense. Now, Quay did a few other distance calculations, and uh, from the news clipping, it said that her family lived at 5421 South Neva Avenue, which is 13 minutes by modern car, but still over two hours away by foot. Yeah. So the idea of walking home is a that doesn't fit so much, but the accident is only a few miles away from where she lived. So again, if you're looking to the walking home story, then that doesn't really fit. Now, as we mentioned earlier, what may fit is that the other version of the story originally was that the original Mary, Resurrection Mary, was being driven home by her father after a dance. Now, as far as I know, that version doesn't mention any other family members. Right, which we mentioned earlier in the show. Right, yeah, exactly. So she's being driven home and gets into an accident when another car hits their car and she is killed. Yeah. So that kind of fits one involving the father. So here's something that comes up in an interesting article about the Willowbrook Ballroom, and that is, it was destroyed by fire in 2016. Oh, we're going to talk about that ballroom. Are we Uh, ever going to talk about (laughs) it? It almost deserves its own show. It's got its own section. Yeah. But people in the area, they certainly know that. And again, doesn't seem suspicious or paranormal. It's just a fire happened while a roof was being worked on and it got out of control and and unfortunately gutted the place. Yeah, this was recently. Yeah, this was, again, this this happened October 28th, 2016. Yes, and you can go and easily find modern day internet footage of it burning. Yes, it's in the article embedded into the article called Fire Destroys Willowbrook Ballroom by Chuck Fieldman. We were talking about it as a character in this story and it really is, but It's sad whenever an institution like that goes away because it had so much history. It had been there so long, uh, even though it had a few different names. It was a a focal point for people. And again, you always find these things at the center of a lot of ghost stories in in North America anyway and, and also throughout the world. And the Willowbrook Ballroom, it was kind of the perfect spot for that kind of thing. And that's the thing. There's a lot of nostalgia. So people in their 80s remember going there as young people. Yeah. All you young folks out there partying right now, I know it's impossible for you to do. 
Just imagine when you're 80. Yeah. <laughs> people are levitating around on their hover bikes and you're trying to explain like, yeah, we went dancing. And, yeah, except that you places. don't. You, you just went to like somebody's house uh, Virtually, yes. Yeah. Now it'll be virtual. So <laughs> it'll still be- These big destinations for lots of people, they're not around so much anymore. It'll be holographic. Well, that was what was unusual and unique and fun about the Willowbrook Ballroom is that people still went there and it was wildly popular- all throughout its history. Again, we'll get into the to history a little bit later, but yeah. from the article here, the ballroom has been owned by this couple for 19 years, and that's Jedeminas Jod Wallace and his wife, Berute. And she was describing the history of the place, uh, saying that there was dancing every day, and it was not unusual for the place to sell 1,000 tickets, nearly meeting its 1,100-person capacity on any given night back in its heyday. Yeah. Uh, probably the 40s into the 50s when it got really popular, but it was always popular. Yeah. It's an amazing place. Um, right. So wh- here's a little interesting tidbit. In the John Wallace's office, there was a copy of Anna Norcus's funeral certificate. Because again, Anna has some tied history to the place, being one of the people who is believed to be Resurrection Mary. And according to the certificate, the 12-year-old died on July 20th, 1927, again, near 66th and Harlem. And as John Wallace says, so there's proof that there was a young lady and that she did die and the legend is she came here to dance a lot. So in summing up Anna Maria's case here, the fact that she is blonde, but it's short blonde hair, she did apparently dance at this place, probably frequently, but is pretty young, so the date scenario does not work. It does fit the father driving her home, but in a totally different location. Right. Not a perfect match for what everybody thinks of as Resurrection Mary. And again, if you're trying to tie this to an original story, which is very nebulous, Anna Maria does not sound like the girl that's being described as the specter that people are seeing. This is a tangent, but you yeah. know what's interesting oh, to me about really. this, just yeah. historically and technically, yeah. and us both being former students of in different ways of, of movies and film. Sure. This was just about two months that she passed away, Anna did, before the first talkie. Uh, yeah, which right. was the jazz singer. That's right. Came out yeah. on October 6th of 1927. That was the first talkie. And I think it's interesting that we're talking about these dance halls because jazz was what they played, as you heard at the top of the show. Yeah. That was what was going on in the world. And that yeah. was the first talkie. Also, it was the same year that one of my favorite movies ever, Metropolis, came out, which <laughs> was a German film. <laughs> right. But, uh, it, there would be no Blade Runner without Metropolis people, <laughs> German yeah. expressionism. But anyway, it's just interesting when you're, you know, we talked at the top of the show or you did and in our opening. Periodically, when we're trying to set the stage for that stuff, I like to pop over to uh, the Wikipedia page for the year. They have pages for years, which is just yeah, amazing. That's cool. So right. you just type in the year, just kind of go through and you look for things that stand out, seem interesting or relevant to the show that we're about to do, giving away all our secrets here. <laughs> um, and when I hit 1939, I just could not believe it. I was yeah. overwhelmed. It was a crazy year. It was a crazy time in history for not only North America, but for the world. Yeah. And uh, just unbelievable amount of stuff happening. Yeah. Um, and stuff that I wound up cutting from the opening when we were working on it. I'm going to have to put it back in there because I can't let it go. And I'm going to end this little tangent. We haven't done a tangent in a while. <laughs> Batman's first appearance. 19, oh, in, 1939, in the comics. In the yeah. comics, in the detective comics. I can't remember what number it was, but that was his first appearance. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah. yeah. No, there are soon to be watershed years. 1947 yeah. for this genre yeah. is another big one. Sure. Anyway, so yeah, Anna doesn't seem like a good fit to me, but you know, the John Wallace has had that death certificate because for them, it's like, look, this was a real girl. She died because that's all people were looking for 
when they're trying to put this together over right. these decades and, of research. And oh, maybe it was her. And yeah. this is a real person. We tracked right. her down. She died, you know, but they're kind of looking the other way on the fact that she was 12. Yeah. Well, and, this is what makes it more interesting in a certain way, because it's a much bigger mystery in a way. I mean, if you found a person, it's just like, well, she died. She looked exactly like that. I guess there's a creepiness factor to it, especially yeah. if you had a photo of her in that dress while she was alive. And that's what people are describing. You know, that roots it to uh, an actual person. But in a way, what's strange that's going on here as referred to by Richard Crow, is that there may be a bunch of different Marys. Yeah. Uh, a bunch of different people, because what we're seeing here is there's no shortage of tragedies around these decades with women named Mary and interred at Resurrection Cemetery. One thing I want to point out that we meant to mention a little earlier with regard to all these Marys in this research is some of this information we got from Adam Selzer's book, The Resurrection Mary Files, Chicago's Most Famous Ghost Story. But where Adam himself appears to have compiled this stuff from, which he indicates because he cites them, is actually an article done by Richard K. Beardsley and Rosalie Hankey called The Vanishing Hitchhiker. And this appeared in California Folklore Quarterly, Volume 1, Number four, in October of 1942, I, I believe it was a multi-part series that appeared in several different issues. But this particular one, uh, they talked a little bit about the origins of this. This is 1942. This predates Brunvald's book. This was kind of the original assembly of the vanishing hitchhiker stories. And, and that's on pages uh, 303 to 335 of the California Folklore Quarterly. And you can find that on uh, JSTOR, which uh, we use in our research frequently. So just wanted to give everybody a heads up about who compiled a lot of these Marys. Uh, ah. because it was those guys. Anyway, so yeah, so moving on, we've gone through the two big fish here, the heavy hitters for potential Marys. Well, the, the two even most though they uh, don't popular. Line up. One's a brunette and one's 12. Yeah, and the rest are women who faced tragic ends, also named Mary. So one of them, in no particular order, is Mary Petkowitz. Actually, these next two were found by Marissa Ball in our ARC. Oh, yes. She's a great That's researcher. Right. That's right. Yeah. So for this Mary, Petkowitz is her married name, and she was only 17 when she married Casimir Petkowitz. And on Christmas night, 1932, Casimir, 21, was driving a car containing his wife Mary, his brother Alex, Anna Gwinovich, 19, Adeline Ruzis, 18, Alcy Neal, 16. And on a dark corner at 55th and Cicero Avenue, a car driven by Steve O'Donnell, who was the brother of Southside beer boss Edward Spike O'Donnell, swerved, and Petkowitz's vehicle rolled over on top of Mary, killing her. So that's got a little bit of history uh, in it, Chicago history. And you'll find articles, you just search those names, Edward Spike O'Donnell, Beer Boss, and Steve O'Donnell, and they come up and so does this accident. So again, it's a tragic accident, but we don't know much about Mary's appearance here that we could find or that was listed. So there might be a photo of her, but there's another Mary involved in a car accident. Around the right time, 1932. Right. And the next one here is Mary Boges, this bit of information found by Marissa Ball. And this one's very tragic. 12 killed in two grade-crossing accidents in one day. This was in 1921 from an article that appeared in the Chicago Daily Tribune. This is in Seltzer's book as well. Yeah. But it was a crowded car en route to attend a burial service, plowed over by a train at an unguarded crossing. Seltzer says... Uh, 
Several people were killed and body parts were found a full mile away. Yeah, this is 12 people killed, including a woman named Mary. Uh, Um, Yes. Now, this Mary, by the way, she also was brunette. Okay, there you go. Yeah. Again, there's a lot of different Marys. Now, here's an interesting case. Oh, that also Mike Brown uh, mentions in his podcast, uh, Pleasing Terrors, when he covers the story. And it's of Mary Miskowski. Troy Taylor, author of The Girl by the Side of the Road, The True Story of Resurrection Mary. And also the author of Weird Illinois. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) He has an interesting interaction with this Mary Miskowski. So I believe Troy interviewed a woman in the early 2000s who identified Mary as a woman named Mary Miskowski. So she's claiming she knew who the real Resurrection Mary is. And she said that in the 1920s, Mary Miskowski had been her babysitter. Yes. And then on Halloween night in 1930, she was killed in an auto accident on Archer Avenue. And she said that she was a blonde and she was wearing a white dress on the night she was killed. So pretty good, promising lead on this now. Because again, Scott, think about the story. Halloween night. Yeah. Wearing a white dress, blonde, Mary, somebody who's really testifying that I know this person. She was my babysitter. And she was going to a costume party that night on Halloween in 1930. So maybe even dressed up a little bit more wearing the gown. So these things are lining up. However, according to Troy Taylor, he's spoken to at least three different people over the years who claim that Mary was their babysitter when they were children. And all of them tell tragic stories about her death, but have never provided any really compelling evidence to say that she eventually became Resurrection Mary. And here's an interesting note from Mike Brown, where he says a later investigation revealed that Mary Miskowski was real, but died in 1956. Yeah. So the date's way off. That's, uh, yeah. Mike got that from uh, Seltzer's book as well. Yeah, exactly. So by 1956, that Mary, Mary Miskowski was in her mid forties. Right, right. So again, we're confirming that. We're agreeing with Mike, who is agreeing with Adam, (laughs) uh, who is not necessarily agreeing with Troy, but Troy can't be blamed either because this information is hard to track all this kind of stuff. No, there's some action actual interviewing going on. Yeah. So some first source news gathering. Yeah. We just sit back and throw rocks at it. Right. These these guys are out there doing the real work. What we try and do (laughs) is we try and find something that seems to pop up in several sources that we seem to trust. And that's all we can do. But if it seems genuine in a couple of different areas, like, all right, well, I guess that's uh, that should be going. We're going to go with that line. But I think the other interesting aspect of this was not so much the fact that this turned out to be the wrong Mary. It's the human angle. Why are these people claiming they had a babysitter named Mary and that's her? Yeah. And so it goes back to my earlier point. Is it people wanting to be a part of the story somehow? Like, I knew Mary. Yeah. She was my babysitter. And on a tragic night on Halloween in 1930. Yeah. She was killed while crossing the street on Archer Avenue. So is this misremembering? Not willfully or trying to uh, mislead anybody, but just an innocent misremembering and fusing yourself into a legend that's local that everybody knows about. So it's interesting for that aspect. And because you don't know, look, we've seen before, they spin tall tales because that's their nature. They want to be a part of something. And uh, now they're part of history in a way, or they're just older and they don't remember. It's like, I don't know if that was me or another Mary, or it was somebody else entirely. So who's to say, but that was an interesting aspect. So here's our last person who is not really so much of a fit for Resurrection Mary, but has the elements of the trope, let's say, and is brought up occasionally because it's around the same time and also met with a tragic end. 
and that's Julia Bucala Petta. And this is from an article titled, it's from the community. Sometimes they take stories from community submissions and it's called Birch's Residence Get a Halloween Scare on a Haunted Bus Tour. And the article is talking about some spooky Halloween stories that go along in this bus tour. And the first one, the bus stops by Mount Carmel Cemetery, which is also really spooky and has two spooky claims to fame. The first one, it's the final resting place of the Chicago mobster Al Capone, who's going to come up later, and the Italian bride, Julia Bucalapetta. And while most of the Birch's residents were all too familiar with the Al Capone story, and this is from the article, and here's the summation of the story. Oh, also, Mount Carmel Cemetery is about 20 minutes north of Resurrection Cemetery on I-294, the suburb of Hillside, Illinois. And the story is the Italian bride, Julia Bucalapetta, was a 29-year-old Chicago housewife who died during childbirth in 1921. She was buried in her wedding dress. After her death, her mother had disturbing dreams in which Julia told her she was still alive. Her mother's dreams continued for six years until finally she was granted permission to dig up her daughter's grave. When she did, her daughter's body was still completely intact. It hadn't decomposed at all since the day she was buried six years earlier. Many in Chicago's Italian community believed it was a miracle and that Julia was a saint. This is my note. Does that sound familiar? Annalisa Michel. That's right. Germany. Getting back to the article. In the years since, Julia's ghost has been spotted in the cemetery on more than one occasion, wandering around in her wedding dress. Mm. Well, that was one stop on the tour. But as the bus tour guide and local entertainer Tim Wilsey said, that's not the creepiest stop on the tour. Resurrection Cemetery is. This is right before Halloween, where yeah. he's taking the residents of the senior home here on this tour. And it sounds like great fun because these folks remember the neighborhood way back when. Yeah. And they had their own stories. Sure. And they, you know, spent a lifetime there. And so they're adding their own bits. But that was the connection is that that's one of the stops, Mount Carmel Cemetery. And the next one is Resurrection Cemetery. So it seems no shortage again of haunted, spooky cemeteries in the whole place and yeah. really famous people. So, yeah. yeah. So where does that leave us? I mean, those are the heavy hitters. And here's something that we have to point out in Selzer's book and in other works where people have tried to do research to compile all the potential Marys for this story. Literally dozens upon dozens of names have come up, Marys in general. And Selzer even says in his book, I was actually kind of touched about this. He said, I, you know, even was going to make it a goal to find all the Marys that died within this certain time period. And he said, I started getting into it. And so many of them were so young. He was like, it was just heartbreaking. He's like, I had to stop. I had to stop. Because there was a lot going on. I mean, at that that point in in time, there were all kinds of easy ways to die young. Uh, Yeah. And so, and in this community, there were a lot of girls named Mary. Yes. As there are in every community to this day. Right. So at the time, very popular name, especially for a religiously minded community. Therefore, there is a lot of Marys in that cemetery, as Richard Crow has mentioned. And so that comes around to trying to make sense of it all. You actually had found some conclusions with regard to the Mary search that Dale Kazmaier came up with at the Ghost Research Society. Yeah, we mentioned him earlier, and uh, I I thought it was a pretty well-written piece on his website. He's with the Ghost Research Society, and they have a website, ghostresearch.org, and he gives kind of a conclusion, which I pretty much agree with, and I'll just read it for you. So what does this all add up to? We have a beautiful blonde. Or um, You're not going to do a Chicago accent? 
No. Okay. (laughs) I I know our listeners would love it. We have no idea what Dale sounds like, by the way. That's exactly. All due respect, Dale, Yeah. uh, if you hear this. I could. Um, Just just imagine uh, it's the the skit from SNL. (laughs) Yes, a friend of my wife's. What am I talking about? It was Paula Pell from our infamous Devil in the Diner episode. She wrote this sketch a long time ago called Pat and Patty's Backpack Shack. Welcome to Pat and Patty's Backpack Shack. We've got so many backpacks, you're going to have a heart attack. (laughs) You need to lay off the beef sausage. You need more pork sausage. That's, That's the good. doctor. Yeah, the Chicago doctor. You could definitely do that guy with the tentacles in uh, Monsters University. Oh, yes. Well, right. So yeah, anyway, yeah. out of respect for Dale, yeah. because again, I think he did a lot of work on this and compiled a lot of information. Yeah, his website's um, really cool. And he's also got, uh, we're going to tackle this later on in part two, I'm going to say that for right now, some of the best footage of some possible evidence yeah. of Barry. Okay, so here's what Dale has to say in conclusion. So what does this all add up to? We have a beautiful blonde or dark brown-haired young woman who is either killed in downtown Chicago from being thrown from a vehicle that had struck an elevated train support or was run down by a hit-and-run driver along Archer Avenue who ranges in age from 17 to almost 22 and was supposedly buried in Resurrection Cemetery in a plot that cemetery officials said was unmarked, moved, or never existed. Also, we have a ghost that either bent the cemetery bars in an attempt to prove her existence or a careless cemetery worker simply backing up into the bars. Yeah, we're going to talk about that uh, downstream in another part of this series. That's one of the best parts of this story. Well, it's an, yeah, it's fascinating because people say they want some evidence. Maybe this is it. This could be trace evidence of the uh, presence of Resurrection Mary. <laughs> right. But as Dale says, the debate rages on. What is for sure are all the many credible, sober, reliable, and highly educated people who have encountered something unusual along Archer Avenue near Resurrection Cemetery for over 70 years. So that's what he's saying. There's a lot of decent, hardworking people who aren't uh, full of hot air right. claiming to have had encounters all along Archer Avenue. So what's I'm going sure on I'm sure some of them had been drinking. Uh, there's, there's a couple I'm of bars. He's singling out the yeah. ones, the, the credible, sober, but because there's a lot of bars on Archer from what I'm understanding here. Well, there's a here. Chet's Melody Maker. I think there's one bar that's very close. Yeah. The point is that it's not all the same scenarios as Richard Crow had found. Most of the sightings had occurred around 1.30 in the morning, as far as you could tell. So at night, uh, except for the cyclist, we're going to talk about some of the more popular encounters and uh, and accounts. But there are patterns to these sightings. Again, mostly it happens to men. If there is a woman who's there to witness, usually she's in the company of a man. It's near one of these buildings that houses social occasions, dance halls, and somewhere along Archer Road between the dance hall and Resurrection Cemetery. So it's an interesting encapsulation of a territory of a ghost. It's the road. We're going to talk about that road. I can't wait to talk about it. Or Uh, that's the thing. It it could be a bunch of different ghosts. Yeah. And so what's going on here? As we heard in Arcapalooza 2, is it one thing mimicking a few other things or people? So what I'm gathering here, and we're going to lead into our halfway conclusions for part one, I'm starting to believe like Richard Crow and like Troy Taylor and I believe Dan Kaczmarek is that there's something definitely going on here. We're getting enough reports of credible people that have been interviewed and that's kind of getting away from the typical story of the urban legend 
which gets away from the framework of the urban legend, which is there's nobody usually that you can point to where the story originates. It's always, you heard it from somebody else. And I, I actually heard one about the kidney removal thing. And I was talking to a friend of my friend and I said, well, where, where'd you find this? Oh, my mom's hairdresser's cousin. Literally, was, that's what that's they said. What you, it was my mom's hairdresser's <laughs> cousin. And it's like, that yeah. happened to them? Well, she heard it from somebody else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how these things go. And yeah. there's probably a real chain of people, I'm sure. I'm sure her mom has a hairdresser who has a cousin, but who knows where the cousin heard it? That's the telephone game. Right. Is. And then it starts out, the original story is a guy tripped in his hotel room and fell on a bench and it hit him in the gut. Right. <laughs> <laughs> something, there's something crazy. And he this. woke up and the air conditioning was on. It was cold. Yeah, there was, yeah. who knows? But, you know, those are uh, easier to not believe, I'll say. Not that ghosts are for a lot of people, but here there's so many accounts. It's like me wondering about the Chicago Mothman. Are all of these hoaxes? And then people are trying to find patterns like, well, uh, it's close to Second City. That was one theory. Maybe it's a prank by a comedy troupe. Maybe there's something going on here. And it's like, well, I haven't heard anything yet. And maybe it's died down. We haven't kept up with it. But it was weird. <laughs> That's a great idea for a comedy troupe prank. But well, they would have to be the witnesses. They're not going to be building jetpacks or whatever. Yeah. So. I mean, and it has to be funny. Otherwise, people are, well, they're still going to be really upset. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> people don't like being fooled. Yeah. But here's, they're just really strange cases of people talking about encountering somebody who is a local legend. And again, I, I think that, sure, a lot of people are seeing somebody weird by the side of the road, and they're immediately thinking it's Resurrection Mary. Like we say with a lot of legends, they get blamed for everything. So anyway, Scott, what's your feeling about Resurrection Mary as we start to close out part one? Well, you know, here where we are at this point, my feeling is, I think when you start to look into this story deeper than just getting past the, all the original folklore and everything, that's associated with it. I think that what you start to find out is that like every story, you know, this was another one where you're like, hey, let's do this. It'll, this one won't be that difficult. Be <laughs> like a, a little singular, bit of a break. Well, no, I certainly heard of the legend and I thought it was like a singular event. Yeah, this girl, she's, you know, she didn't make it home. She's looking for a ride. It's so much bigger. It's bigger. Oh, we start looking yeah. and it just opens up. It's a cornucopia of ideas. And yeah, I'm going to stop doing that too. I'm, uh, so, I'm so very sorry. No, <laughs> every, like, this one will just be a one-parter. And yeah. now we're, you know, as we were recording this one, part one, we're like, I think we got two or three on our hands here. Yeah. And we do. And it's really fascinating, but it's super compelling to me. It's super yeah. interesting. There's a lot of stuff that we haven't gotten to yet that I'm very excited to share with our listeners. I think that the interesting part about what we just covered with all the different candidates is how that none of them really align. Right, none of right, them align. Right. But I think that says more about the story itself than it does about who was this person that's Resurrection Mary. Yeah. I am leaning towards the idea that there there isn't really a single representation of Resurrection Mary. Yeah. Resurrection Mary is more of an idea that falls on different people's minds and spirits in different ways. And right. it, honestly, it reminds me a little bit of Dr. Taylor's approach to the Yeti. Yeah. And his after his multi-decade search, he came to a lot of interesting conclusions about it, it, not the least of which was that it's important to protect it because it's a very compelling and integral part of the culture in the Himalayan region. Right. This is the same thing. This is Chicago's story. Resurrection yeah. Mary is amazing. I'm not about to say she doesn't exist. What I am about to say <laughs> is... She's bigger than you think she is.
that's going to wrap up part one of our series on Resurrection Mary and hitchhiking ghosts. We're dark next week for my son's spring break, but we'll return the week after with part two. The haunting jazz melody used in the opening sound design was Me and the Man in the Moon, recorded in 1928 and sung by vocalist Frank Silvano, a Chicago native known as the romantic voice of the air. He was accompanied by the Ambassadors. That track is in the public domain. Please remember to support our sponsors. They keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. Hi, I'm Sprinkleface. Summer says chili. Hi, I'm Cassidy Price. And I give S-A-R-A-H permission to use my voice. Our show is edited by Sarah Wendell. And our theme, which is available as a ringtone, is by Judson Crane. Sound design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to The Ark and its lead researcher, Tess Feifel. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also find us at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends if you'd like to support the show in that way. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. Thank you.